Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's been a powerful blessing today with the different music we've heard with Will and Tristan and, and with Jackie Ross and Gail. And our hearts are stirred by all of these things. But I believe you've stirred us for a purpose because you wish to drive a message home in our hearts. And so, Lord, we are ready to hear your word. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's the 4th of July weekend, and we all know that's the the date each year when we celebrate independence. And so as we were headed into this weekend, and I was reflecting on that and thinking about it, a memory came to my mind of something that happened to me, something I experienced about 30 years ago. Now, it didn't technically happen uh, on 4th of July weekend, but it was around 30 years ago. It happened during my time at the University of Tennessee when I was studying to be a chemical engineer. And it was one of those moments of overwhelming national pride and connectedness with people around me. If you had an experience like that, that the moment of pride and connection, it was a powerful moment. The situation was this, it was halftime of a University of Tennessee football game. So there's, I'm, I'm in a crowd with 100,000 people. We're all gathered around and it's halftime and I don't actually recall who the opponent was that day and in, in truth it didn't really matter because in the moment I'm remembering there was no such thing as opponents any longer but instead we were all united together in a far greater cause than who was gonna win the football game. So what had happened is the the University of Tennessee Pride of the Southland marching band had taken the field and they'd marched around and done a couple songs already and then the public address announcer came on and said, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome country music recording artist Lee Greenwood. We all stood there and applauded very politely as he came out to the middle of the field. And then what began to play over the PA system and also with the band and then him singing was the song for which I believe he is the most famous. And this will determine whether you have any country music bones in you at all. You will know the song, God Bless the USA. Do you know that one? Yeah, it goes like this. And I'm proud to be an American. Join moment. Here we are, just this, this bunch of college-aged hoodlums gathered together with sports-crazed alumni and fans of all ages, mostly Tennessee fans. There, there are a few misguided people there rooting for the other team, but mostly Tennessee fans. Yet in that magical moment, we all became part of something bigger. From the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee, from the plains of Texas, from sea to shining sea, 
from Detroit down to Houston and New York to L.A., well, there's pride in every American heart, and it's time to stand and say, I'm proud to be an American, or at least I know I'm free. And I won't forget the men who died who gave that right to me, and I'd gladly stand up next to you and defend her still today. For there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. And in that moment, we were all wiping our eyes. The 4th of July reminds us that despite all the foolishness and divisions, we're all part of something very important. A nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, as Abraham Lincoln said. Unless we become too despairing about our times, it was Lincoln in that same Gettysburg Address who also said, now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. Well, at least we aren't in the midst of a civil war today. That's good news, isn't it? Certainly we can be thankful for that. And I suppose history denotes and prophecy dictates and logic demands that the answer to Lincoln's rhetorical question as to whether such a nation can long endure is, well, no, it can't endure forever. For it's built, despite its well-meaning, on weak and sinful humans. Yet perhaps, by God's grace, Everything that makes us proud to be Americans, perhaps it can endure a bit longer. That's what I'm praying will happen. I've always been proud to be an American. I've been proud to be a part of something important in the history of the world. I pray that my children and grandchildren will get the same chance. But I know they will get the chance to be a part of something important in the world, even if that thing is no longer a free America. For as important as this nation has been to God's purpose in the world, there is actually something else even more important than America to the future of the world. Something to which I belong and to which my children and grandchildren, Lord willing, will also belong. I'm talking about... The kingdom of God. The kingdom in which our Lord Jesus is the king. The only kingdom to ever be established in the earth that will never pass away. I want to spend a little time today talking about that kingdom. And even more specifically, talking about the act that God has given us to show our commitment to and acceptance of that kingdom. I want to talk to you today about baptism. We're doing a frames series again. That's why you see these frames up here. We did this a year ago. And if you'll recall, what these frames are here to draw our mind to is 
We want to talk about doctrines, doctrines of the church. We call them fundamental beliefs, but there's an important thing we need to understand when we talk about doctrines. You see, doctrines are supposed to be frames, but the picture is supposed to be Jesus. The doctrines, when when we rightly use them, will explain and give shape and form, but they themselves are not the core point. The point is Jesus. So we always want to keep this in mind. The doctrines give us clarity. They give us a common starting point for life and faith. But we have to be careful with our doctrines because they can, if not monitored, become the focus of the faith. But that's not their job. They're designed to help us focus, not be the focus. Doctrine rightly used will enable and empower Christian witness. So any discussion about doctrine, I think it's very important to remember these words. You see, if you were to go to the Seventh-day Adventist Church website and go to the section under beliefs and clicked on the part about doctrines, before you even got to the 28 fundamental beliefs, you would find these words. It says, Seventh-day Adventists accept the Bible as their only creed, and hold certain fundamental beliefs to be the teachings of Scripture. So it is the Bible that we look to. We've built beliefs out of it, but it is the Bible that is primary in this, not what we've constructed. These beliefs, as set forth here, constitute the church's understanding and expression of the teaching of Scripture. Revisions of these statements may be expected at a general conference session when the church is led by the Holy Spirit to a fuller understanding of Bible truth or finds better language in which to express the teaching of God's holy word. So I want you to understand this. I'm going to read you in a moment doctrine number 15, fundamental belief number 15, which is about baptism. But remember, it's not the specific words here. It's the words taken from the Bible. This is our understanding. So we're going to spend some time on doctrine number 15, baptism. So here's how it reads, if you were to read in the official statement of fundamental beliefs. By baptism, we confess our faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and testify of our death to sin and of our purpose to walk in newness of life. Thus we acknowledge Christ as Lord and Savior, become His people, and are received as members by His church. Baptism is a symbol of our union with Christ, the forgiveness of our sins, and our reception of the Holy Spirit. It is by immersion in water and is contingent on an affirmation of faith in Jesus and evidence of repentance of sin. It follows instruction in the Holy Scriptures and acceptance of their teaching. Okay. Baptism is God's way for us to say, Jesus, I want to be part of your kingdom. And if you think you're proud to be an American, where at least you know you're free, how much prouder are you to be a Christian where you know that the grace of God has come to you through Jesus Christ? 
So where did we get baptism? Where does it come from? Well, typically when we think of baptism, we look back to the ministry of John the Baptist, the one sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus. So in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, we read this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, if you go down to verse 5, people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Okay, so the the roots of baptism, of the action that John was taking, are actually found deep within the Jewish concept of ritual cleansing, with history having revealed that certain communities of Jews, particularly the Essenes and some of the ones that were at Qumran, those are the ones associated with the Dead Sea Scrolls, apparently had some sort of full immersion type washing that the people did on a fairly regular basis. But John brought something new to the experience. He brought to it a very direct connection between the experience of the washing and the repentance from sin, all in the context of the kingdom of God coming near. And as the text said, the people responded to John's call and came and were baptized. But even John knew that what he was doing was just a beginning of what was about to be. There was going to be more to this sign than John himself was able to put into it. And we see this in verse 11. John said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The change in the meaning of baptism, when it, became, when it began to become more than just a washing away of sins, but in fact became that acknowledged moment of entry into the kingdom of heaven, along with the moment of an out, a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit, well, the transition happened shortly after this, and you find it in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, when Jesus suddenly appears at the Jordan River. We read these words. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And in this experience of Jesus, we see the beginning of, of the fullness of the meaning of baptism. Yes, the concept of the washing and forgiveness of sin was to remain with this ritual, yet something more was to be associated with baptism, something not even within our own capacity to achieve. 
Now certainly it is our responsibility to repent of our sins, um, though in truth, if you'll recall from what we talked about last week, it's the Spirit of God working on our heart that enables us to repent at all. Even that is God's work as well. But we do come in repentance and acceptance. But baptism is not just about repentance. It's also about receiving the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as John implied that one day it would be. You remember these words, verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This was a truth that certain converts were to discover in the book of Acts. This notion that baptism means more than just a washing away of sins committed. Could it be that in baptism we again see that construct we saw that we talked about last week? Let me digress for just a minute here and remind you what we said. What we said last week was, I suppose if we wanted to simplify the experience of salvation, we could put things into two categories. What God has done to rescue us and what God has done to give us a new life. Do you remember that? Or said another way, deliverance and calling. Now, if you missed last Sabbath, I recommend you go back and listen to that because there's some important points there that will help you as you deal with texts regarding salvation. But back to today and about baptism, we find this most interesting account in the book of Acts, an account that I want to suggest demonstrates to you this twofold nature of baptism, namely repentance and then empowerment to new life. Acts chapter 19 is where we find this story. Verse 1, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So I want you to understand a couple things here. So yes, baptism is a symbol of repentance from sin. And yes, learning about what is right and determining to turn away from what is wrong is key to the concept, as is shown well in this passage from the writings of Paul to the Romans in Romans 6, verse 1. Paul writes, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. So to be baptized is to repent of sin and to seek to leave sin behind. So it is confession and a washing and cleansing. But I'll bet you know there isn't much chance that we could on our own 
in our own strength be able to leave sin behind, could we? And that is why baptism has to mean more than just repentance and why those believers that Paul encountered went on and were baptized again. It is also about receiving the Holy Spirit, our connection to the power that will enable us to live a new life. And then this then is how baptism perfectly aligns with what we talked about last week in the experience of salvation. Last week we said that the experience of salvation is found in what God has done to rescue us and what God has done to give us new life. Baptism then serves as the point in time to which we can look, the point where we accept by faith forgiveness what God has done to rescue us, And we receive by faith the Holy Spirit what God has granted so that we can live a new life. Now a moment ago I read you Romans chapter 6 verse 4 and we established that first part about how baptism is connected with repentance. But I didn't read the whole verse. Let me read you the whole verse and you'll see how it's also connected to a new life. Romans 6 verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So do you see both of the pieces in this? What God has done to rescue us and what God has done to give us a new life. Do you see how both of these pieces are connected to this symbol, baptism, this experience? Rescue and new life, deliverance and calling, this is what baptism means. I'll give you one more example of what I'm talking about. This pattern is exactly what happened to Paul. You'll recall that the Apostle Paul was at one time the persecutor Saul. But then he encountered Jesus face to face on the road to Damascus. And by Paul's own telling, here's how it happened. Acts 22, verse 6. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment I was able to see him. Then he said, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. 
Okay, so what has happened in this story so far? Do you see these elements? We have the persecutor Saul who has a face-to-face encounter with Jesus realize that he needs to repent and turn away from that life. He loses his sight. He goes into the city and God brings him deliverance through a man named Ananias who comes to him and gives him assurance that God has accepted him and prays for him and his sight is restored. So he is delivered. This is what God has done to save him. But then Ananias goes on to say, and now God has a job for you. This is what God does to give him a new life. Deliverance and calling. So what's Paul supposed to do at this point? Ah, that's the next verse. Verse 16, Ananias went on. He says, and now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. God in his wisdom has given us baptism so that we can officially mark the point of our citizenship in his kingdom. Baptism, when rightly experienced and received, removes all doubt as to whether or not you belong to the kingdom of God. And the quite remarkable experience serves as a permanent reminder throughout your life that you belong to Jesus and Jesus belongs to you. And not only that, but also that you are now a permanent part of the people of God, among whom you may at times feel a certain rivalry, but with whom in truth you can proudly stand up next to them and defend and proclaim the faith. Baptism is the sign that God has given, the activity in which we are invited to participate that will serve as our point-in-time witness to all around that we believe and that we want to be a part of the community of faith and then to serve as a permanent reminder to ourselves for the remainder of our lives that we belong to King Jesus. All who believe need to experience baptism. It's the right thing to do. And it is what God has called us to to do. So I ask you today, do you need to be baptized? There's a card in front of you. It's, It's there every week. We have it in the pews. You might familiarize yourself. You might just reach up there and grab one of those and look at it because you may want to put something else on it as well. But there's a card in front of you that has a place for you to put your name and other information. But primarily today, if you feel the Spirit talking to you today, I want you to take that card. I want you to write your name on it. And I want you to indicate that you want to be baptized. Now, I'm not going to tell you that you can't be saved if you don't do this. That's not my call. That's God's business, and there's mysteries about him I'm never going to solve. So I'm not threatening you, okay? 
I can't tell you what will happen if you don't. But I can tell you what will happen if you do. You see, you will be acting in faithfulness to God's call to repent and be baptized. You will experience the water rushing over you, symbolizing your death to sin and the passing away of your old life. And you will experience coming up out of the water and entering new life. Does that sound good? And in that moment, God will open heaven just like he did for Jesus and speak in a voice that only your heart will hear. A voice that says, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. In you I am well pleased. You know why? Because it pleases God when we act in faith and do what he calls us to do. And along with that voice that only your heart can hear will come an outpouring that only your spirit can know. The outpouring of God's spirit to empower you to live a new life. And with that spirit will come a calling to a new life of meaning and a new life of purpose. A calling to take your place next to the other believers in the kingdom of God. Deliverance and calling. What God has done to save us and what God has done to give us new life. Baptism is the experience God has given us that means these things. And through baptism, we become a part of the greatest cause this world has ever known. Do you need to be baptized? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that your spirit will speak to our hearts today. And that anyone here today who needs to be baptized will take the card and write their name and indicate that they want to be baptized. And we will get together with them and we will talk with them and explain and all the implications and what it all means and we will do that in this very place. Lord, it is what you have given us to serve as that marker, to witness before each other that we want to be a part of the kingdom of God, that we want to stand up next to our brothers and sisters in this cause. Lord, convict our hearts. And let us be baptized. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.